Well, y'all, I am one of three children. I'm the oldest. I'm Sissy. And then I have a brother, Rob, who's 20 months younger. And then I have a brother, Dave, who's about five and a half years younger. And I've told y'all before that, you know, in my world, two of my top love languages are laughter and food. And part of that is because my brothers and I, when we get together, we laugh ourselves sick. I mean, we look like we are certainly under the influence of something, and we're under the influence of each other. And part of that history with us, my brother Rob, who's the one who's 21 months younger, 20 months younger, is 6'5", Dave's 6'6". I always thought I was petite because everybody, my dad's 6'5". My mom is 5'2". And she knew early on, Karen Steele, that she had to get she had to get the mojo on those boys because she knew if she ever let go of that thread they were going to be so much bigger than she was <laughs> and she does inspire a holy fear of God in those boys they are now men you know Rob just turned 40 and, and Dave's in his late 30s and they travel the world and they're, they've you know, been successful businessmen and all the rest and my mom still at an event can go <clears throat> and both my brothers will go it's amazing. Well, we would go back to Mississippi almost every summer to visit family. And when I was 15 and Rob was 13, which would have made Dave like 10 or 11, we are in Mississippi and we are traveling from northern Mississippi to central Mississippi. There's not a whole lot there. There's a Dairy Queen about halfway in between of where you need to go. So we had, I can't remember how we got there that time. We have gotten to Mississippi by various modes of travel, including a Greyhound bus from California at one point. But we were traveling through Mississippi and we were going from one grandmother's house to the other grandmother's house and my mom was always under a little bit of stress just trying to travel with these kids and our behavior at some of the places we stopped at in front of these more um, moderate conservative people. And so we were on the road and we had stopped at a fast food place. And I was in the front seat with my mom and Rob and Dave were in the back. And Rob started going to Dave, Dave, with a ketchup packet. He had this ketchup packet, and he was twisting the end of it like, Dave, I'm going to get you. My mom said, Robert, you stop that right now. Dave. And Dave was a squealer. Oh, he's doing it again. Mom said, Rob, I'm serious. Rearview mirror. You know this one, the evil eye in the rearview mirror? Rob, I'm telling you, stop. So we go like maybe a half mile more. And this was in the 80s, so I had my side ponytail. So I'm sitting in the passenger seat, mom's in the front seat. We're driving. All of a sudden, through my side ponytail, onto the windshield. It looks like somebody has opened up a jugular in the back seat. Rob has twisted that ketchup package until it has exploded through my side ponytail and all over the windshield. My mom jerked that car over to the side of the road in a split second. 5'2". Rob at this point was probably a gangly, close to six foot. She hauls him out of the car, lays him over the hood of the car. Now, this was back in the days when we didn't know that it was unhealthy to discipline children. So she lays him over the hood of the car, and he's looking, because she comes over to my side, he's looking in the windshield at me. She proceeds to rip her sandal off and do this. Okay? Now, he's looking at me through the windshield, and he's doing this. He's like doing mocking sobbing faces okay so I'm losing I mean I'm in the car just like looking at him through the ketchup with my mother just doing this number and all her little tiny fury 
he gets back in the car and he's already laughing. I mean, because this trucker goes by and honks. My mom goes, you shut up! <laughs> she gets her sandal back on. Rob climbs in the car. He's... <laughs> she gets in. Don't you laugh! Evil eye in the review mirror. Don't you laugh! <laughs> Until finally, about two miles down the road, we just all lose it. So this is Rob. We come up to a Thanksgiving... And Rob had a has still has a particular gift for making certain fluids come through your nose at inappropriate times. So we're sitting at the Thanksgiving dinner table. This is, you know, months later. And he starts looking at Dave after the prayer going, doing all those faces. And Dave's... <laughs> dairy through the nose and what had been a gorgeous Thanksgiving spread it's amazing how you can go from one second Thanksgiving looks beautiful to two seconds later in the blink of a sneeze with lactose laden spray on everything Dave goes I just remembered that I I ruined Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> and, it, and there was milk everywhere my mom takes everything off the table we wipe it all down and bring it back but that's Rob's history in our life of making faces at us and how we can go from a spread looking so gorgeous to us to all of a sudden it's not quite so palatable. You know, the thing that is interesting in the Bible, and it's something that I think we've lost a little bit of in our culture, is how important the table was in those cultures. The table, the table, the table. And the first mention of a table is in Genesis and do you remember the story of Joseph? He's taken captive. He goes into Egypt. He's taken captive because his brothers have betrayed him. And when his brothers end up coming to Egypt looking for food, they arrive at Pharaoh's court, and there's Joseph. They don't recognize him. And he serves his brothers at a table of what I would call forgiveness and restoration and revelation. It's after they eat together, and they begin to go on their way and leave to go back to their father, and he has designed that the youngest brother, he's going to make it look like the youngest brother's been shoplifting so that he can pull him back in. But these brothers finally realize who he is. And he reveals to them that he is the brother who has forgiven them. He's the brother who's going to provide for them. It's one of the first mentions of a table. So the next references are in Exodus 25, verse 23, and in uh, 1 Kings. The table was a really important part of both the tabernacle and of the temple. It's funny, we talk a lot about the Ark of the Covenant, don't we? And they had to have special poles to carry it and all this kind of stuff. But the table of presence where they would lay out the bread before the Lord as a way of honoring him with first fruits, it also had rings that they were to put the poles through and carry. It was very precious and holy, this place where you would make the sacrifice of your first grains, your first fruit. These are some fairly... Uh, don't adjust your glasses. This is just... <laughs> It was hard to find free domain pictures that would come up in the correct, the correct pixel. But that's an example of what they think that table may have looked like that stood within both the tabernacle and the temple. And that's another example of one of the tables. You know, in ancient cultures, and even in many cultures in the Middle East today, the table was the platform upon which generosity and relationship were built. You came to the table and shared. My in-laws have been 
strongly involved with a Russian immigrant family and, and the extended family in bringing them over to the U.S. And you know, these folks oftentimes, depending on where they're at and employment cycles and everything else, have virtually nothing. But every time my in-laws go over there, they put out a spread you would not believe. It's part of their culture to say, hey, if I don't eat for the next two days, that's okay. You are my honored guest. No matter what I have, I'm going to share the best of what I have with you. You know, it's a lost art in this country. We don't know how to linger at the table anymore. We don't know how to do it. One of the most precious things to me when we go to see Mike's mom and dad um, over the holidays or if we're staying with my parents, and it's been a real blessing that's come after the, after the move, it's something I don't know that I necessarily experienced as much until after we moved, is we'll get up in the morning and Mike's mom will have gone and gotten cinnamon rolls or made cinnamon rolls and there'll be fresh coffee, and we will sit at the breakfast table for two hours, two and a half hours, laughing and talking, don't have to be anywhere, we linger. And in that lingering over beautiful food and sweet drink with wonderful people, that heart of fellowship is built again, is built again. Justice has a family on his soccer team and they're American but they've been missionaries in Ukraine for probably a decade and a half, maybe about 15 years. And Mike was saying to the dad, he said, so how has your acclimation been coming back into the U.S.? And it's been a mixed bag because they've loved being back closer to family. They've loved the conveniences that the American culture affords. But the dad said to Mike, he said, you know, he said, but it's been hard for us to get to know people coming back in. He said, when we would go over to somebody's house after church in the Ukraine, you'd go for the whole afternoon, which I'm just trying to figure out how I would fit in. You know, I have probably one strong legalism in my doctrine, which is Sunday afternoon nap. So that panics me a little bit. People over for the entire, like, what do you mean the entire afternoon? Entire afternoon. And that they would then also break bread at the evening meal together. And the dad said, you come from something like that to back to the U.S. and we're all going to rip through, you know, Mickey D's or Bueno together. He said, it's a completely different feel. It's been hard for me to get connected to people again. In biblical times, to eat at the king's table meant that you were included as part of his inner circle. Yeah. Yes, I sure do. No, no, no. You're great. I'm glad you stopped me. You know, I'll just go going on a train and I won't stop. Here you go. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. But to eat at the king's table meant that you were part of this inner circle. You were trusted and that you would have provision. Think about David with Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. I know, that story just gets me every time. Gets me every time. And part of that story that's so precious is that once Mephibosheth comes in, he's been so terrified of ever being found out. But the minute David brings him in to be part of the king's table, nobody can touch him and he will always have provision. Now conversely, if you look over in 1 Kings 18.19, we talk about Jezebel and how she was this evil queen and the stuff that she did and she was so naughty and on and on and on. And she was, I'm not discounting that. But I want you to see who she was eating with as a regular occasion. If I can find First Kings. You got it? You want to read it? Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount 
Yeah, and you know, there's always a possibility of the wrong one down, so <laughs> go ahead. The 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who ate at Jezebel's table. If you're having dinner parties with Asherah's prophets on a consistent basis, who are you fellowshipping with? Who are you hanging with on a daily basis? And what kind of things are they going to be saying into your life on a daily basis? And that's who Jezebel made her eating companions on a consistent basis. You know, some of the most intimate times we see with Jesus and his disciples are as they are surrounding a table. There are verses that talk about him eating with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. When the woman breaks the expensive alabaster over Jesus' feet, he's been at a table. When he shows them the mystery of bending down to wash their feet and serve them, it is as they are going into a table. And of course, when we come to the Lord's Supper, they are seated around a table. One of the times we see Jesus the most angry involves a table in Matthew 21, when he walks into the temple and he turns the table of the money changers. Because, you know, part of what the money changers were doing at that table is they were sort of trying to have communion with the Lord. They're within the temple gates, but they're also trying to have compromise. They have mixed what they're serving at that table. You know, we have a little bit of irony <clears throat> that camps out in the middle of our Thanksgiving tables every year. Sometimes we're like those money changers wanting communion and compromise. Do you guys, you guys know what these are called, right? Cornucopia. 20 points to the cute blonde. They're called cornucopias. I know. <laughs> I know it. What are you going to do? We call it the horn of plenty. <clears throat> it's a symbolic hollow horn and it's supposed, supposedly filled with inexhaustible gifts of celebratory food and gourds. It comes from the 5th century. It's a Roman myth involving Zeus and his literal nanny goat. She was supposedly, well, I say literal. It's literal as you can get within mythology. Let me qualify. But his nanny goat, Amalthea. And apparently Amalthea nursed Zeus because he was hidden on the island of Crete. And as he was playing with her one day, he accidentally breaks off one of her horns. He breaks off one of her horns. And in remorse, he says, well, Amalthea, here's what I'm going to do for you. This horn I broke off, gee, I'm so sorry. I'm going to imbue it with magical powers, and whoever has this horn will be able to have an inexhaustible supply of provision. That's what I'll do. That's how I'll make this up to you. Through the years... It has also become a symbol of a woman's fertility. Some say it's the story predecessor to the unicorn and to the Holy Grail. And when you see that constellation in the sky, Capricorn, that's the horn of plenty. That's the goat. Okay? Corn, you know, cornucopia, corn means horn, and then the capra means plenty. Okay? So that's where that constellation name comes from. Um, I read a quote that said, The horn of plenty is used on jewelry as a symbol of fertility, fortune, and abundance. Some evangelical Christians actually advise against using it because they say it's similar to the Italian horn of male fertility, that it's unlucky, that it's demon-infested, that it could be a symbol of the Antichrist. I, I just think it's a cone, just so you know. That's, I didn't bring 
didn't bring horrible objects into the room today. It's the state seal of Idaho, North Carolina, New Jersey. And so ironically, we find in the middle of our Thanksgiving tables a symbol that is not reliant on the provision of God. Every time we come to the table as families should be a Thanksgiving table. And oftentimes the sneeze of the world <laughs> sprays it with mixed wine. I want you to look at this next verse. Hey, come on in. There you go. Isaiah 65, 11 through 12. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword, and you will all bend down for the slaughter. For I called you, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You know, this is one of the reasons that Jesus had such a strong response to the money changers in the temple. They were serving bowls of mixed wine, if you will. They didn't have a pure motive in what they were doing at this table. But, you know, we can choose to place a different cornucopia on our tables this year. We can choose to place a different goat's horn on our table this year because there's something that predates a 5th century Roman mythology. There's a goat's horn that was so central to the Jewish culture, and that's the shofar. Now, the shofar sometimes is a goat's horn, a wild goat's horn. Sometimes it's a ram. And depending on the ceremony and the festival or the fast time that you are celebrating will depend on what you use. And there's a little bit of controversy within Orthodox Judaism, but from what I could tell in terms of what most use at certain times, when we look at Joshua 6.4, it was the goat's horn, the shofar, that was used for the felling of Jericho that it called to action. In Exodus 19 and 16, it was the goat's horn. It was the cornucopia goat's horn who gave the people such tremendous fear and awe of what was happening on God's holy mountain. Now, we don't do an adequate job in some of our Bibles in really delineating between shofar and trumpet. Okay, And you actually have to really get into the Hebrew to designate the difference. Um, do some of y'all use Strong's? dictionary and some of your Bible studies, you know, the little numbers and how you go back and you reference. The shofar comes from 7782. That's the number that is referenced for that word. And sometime we can do a ways to study the Bible if you guys are interested in that and I can walk you through what some of that looks for. But the goat's horn, the shofar, was very delineated from 8643, which is tiruah, which is like a true trumpet, okay? And that's like a proclamation of joy. But the shofar means an incising. It was to be a cutting of the heart to wake up. It was to be an engraving. Incising also means to engrave. God wanted to engrave something on them when they heard that shofar. Typically where the goat's horn shofar is used, and here's some more really blurry pictures, don't adjust your readers. Typically when it was used, and still today is used, is for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. There are other calls that the shofar is used for. It's often with a ram's horn. But the goat's horn shofar was used 
for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Now Rosh Hashanah is what we would call the Jewish New Year. And it takes place in the month of Tishri. And Revelation, you know, not all calendars line up with the American Gregorian calendar the way we see it, okay? So the Jewish New Year is actually usually around September, October. There are ways of rendering this. I don't think it's any mistake that the Lord timed the Jewish New Year, and this all comes from the blowing of trumpet, that's the blowing of horns, the blowing of the shofar from Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29. They didn't call it Rosh Hashanah back in Bible times. That's what it's come to be called today. But I don't think it's any mistake that at the time of harvest, they celebrated a new year. And here's what was kind of laid on me about that. You know, why would God call for this reminder of a new year at the time of the harvest? I think it's because we tend to get cocky when our barns are full and our needs are met. Oh, well, that was great. Thank you, Lord. I, I got it now. I got some inventory. I'm good. Because what the shofar was supposed to do in that incisement, in that engraving, was it was supposed to say to them and proclaim, God is king. It's where we get the word coronation from. Okay? Cornucopia. To coronate again that God is king. On Rosh Hashanah, the day of Rosh Hashanah, when the first shofar is blown, it's a call to say, examine your hearts. If you're righteous, then you're written in the book of life. Good for you. If you're wicked or you're lukewarm, you've got ten days until Yom Kippur to get your act together. And then we're going to blow the shofar again, and if you haven't managed to get your act together by then, then your name will be blotted from the book of the living at that final shofar blast. And so the shofar was commonly even taken out during times of war to call the troops to battle. God is king. Go into battle. I loved a couple of quotes that I read from some rabbis and from the Mishnah Torah, which is the book of repentance. The shofar says, wake up from your moral sleep. You are asleep. Get up from your slumber. You are in a deep sleep. Search your behavior. Become the best person you can. Remember God, the one who created you. You know, the, when Jerusalem was occupied by both the Ottoman and the British empires, it was illegal for them to sound the shofar. Illegal. They couldn't do it. So after the Six-Day War in 1967, when Jerusalem was taken once again by the Jews, guess what happened? A rabbi, Shlomo Goren, approaches the Wailing Wall, and he sounds, ooh, he sounds the shofar. It still gives me the shivers. This is also so written in the rabbinic literature. The Holy One said on Rosh Hashanah, recite before me verses of sovereignty, remembrance, and shofar blasts. Sovereignty so that you should make me your king. Remembrance so that your remembrance should rise up before me. And through what? The shofar. The goat's horn. As you get your decorations out this year for your holiday table, call this your shofar. Call this goat's horn that the Romans would have you remember is a fairy tale and a myth and a magic genie in a bottle. Let it again remind you as a trumpet call. God is king. Now what do we usually put in these? What's traditional? Yeah, fruit and vegetables, fruit, uh, flowers and gourds has always been very traditional. 
to put in there. Even during Roman times, you would see this. And so, yes, we traditionally fill our cornucopias with fruit and gourds. It's a symbol of the harvest. A symbol of the harvest. You know, when King Solomon was given the go to build the temple, and he had the interiors laid in cedar, all in cedar, what he had carved in the temples were fruit and gourds. And you'll see this in 1 Kings 18. There's another verse that talks about it. Now, gourds are really interesting because, as you know, unless you have the ability to actually make pumpkin pie, which I don't see a lot of reference to pumpkin pie in the Old Testament, why would you really grow gourds? They take a long time to cook. Uh, they don't have a lot of fruit to them. There's not a lot of pulp in there. Well, the reason they would grow gourds, it was their own version of making their own homegrown water bottles. That's what they were for. Many times they would grow them, they would hollow them out and dry them, and they would become vessels. They would become vessels for liquids, even for wine, even for water, any, for oil, anything you might need. Once a gourd was dried out, it was their version of Tupperware. And that's why they would grow gourds during that time. But, you know, in the process of becoming a gourd and in the carving that King Solomon did, I want you to remember, King Solomon asked for what? What was he known for? Wisdom. wisdom. And, you know, I used to think that was spiritual wisdom until I looked back when Sheba comes to visit him and he knows all kinds of things about botany, zoology, chemistry. He was given incredible intrinsic knowledge of the world. Now, what we think was carved on the walls of the temple as Solomon's gourds, as best as we can figure, is this symbol. Now, to me, that doesn't look much like a gourd, okay? But it's this symbol, and this is called Solomon's knot. Solomon's knot. And the reason it's called that, do you see how you can't cut one aspect of any of those curves without the whole thing untangling? We now use this symbol as a representation for the atom, A-T-O-M, the very building block of everything on the planet. This is Solomon's knot. This is Solomon's gourd. This is the gourd that was carved on the temple. For a gourd to be useful, it had to be emptied. It had to be dried. And then for it to be useful, it had to be filled. We are to be vessels. We are to be vessels. Why would you carve a gourd that is so interconnected in that symbol on the walls of the temple as a reminder for those who would seek his mysteries that we are going to have to be emptied of ourselves. We may spend some dry time in some dry places getting cured into what we're to be. And then he's going to fill us. We're going to be a vessel of some sort. Thank you. I want to go back to that verse again in Isaiah 65. Now that we've painted a little more of this imagery. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword. I called you, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not Listen, that word fortune, you spread a table for fortune. It's for a Babylonian god named Gad. 
and he was the Babylonian god of fortune. That's why you're going to see it in the King James. It's going to say troop. They're talking about Gad, this, this god. You're going to see numbers in the King James for destiny. But again, that's almost like a rolling of the dice. Okay, And so with Gad, what he was over was chance, circumstance, fluke, karma, kismet. Pick your name. For destiny, it was for the god Mene, who was considered an apportioner. It was for roll of the dice, luck, contingency, fortuity. When God is not our king, when we're relying on myths and traditions and superstitions, and we put this mixed wine in front of our tables and we go, well, God, you know, he's there, but, you know, life's a fluke. I'm not held in his hand. He's not omnipotent. Well, God's pretty good. He's pretty powerful. But I'm going to go on and do this, 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 and this just to make sure. He might be busy. Well, I know I should probably wait upon the Lord, but if I just made two or three phone calls and sent a couple emails, I could get this baby done. We are serving mixed wine at a table where our cornucopia is no longer a clarion call of his kingship. Paul warns us, we can't have it both ways. We can't have a beautiful turkey with milk all over it that came out the 10-year-old's nose. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. James 1.5 says, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. And then in James 3.10, Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. We oftentimes come to the table of demons, and it's interesting. I think we're looking for scarier stuff. We're looking for exorcism kind of stuff. But I have to tell you all, I think the enemy is craftier than that. If I see somebody turning green and their head spinning, it doesn't take a whole lot for me to go, there's something just not right about that. But we have these quiet little demons that come to the table of Thanksgiving with us. We have these quiet ones that are irritable. They're a little touchy. They're a little frustrated the schedule's not going exactly right. They're, they're just kind <clears> of... <throat> they're small. They're quiet. And yet those are the very ones that for a lot of people who are not believers or who are looking at us to watch the way we're walking, that's what they go, that's hypocrisy. If this Jesus thing works, why are you in such a bad mood? If this Jesus thing works, then why are you all about your schedule? If this Jesus thing works then why is there milk on the turkey? I don't understand. When we look at the fall of the enemy and his demons, it wasn't that they went and started doing wild and crazy spewing green stuff, is it? It was that Lucifer said, I will. I will be in control. And the central thing he's saying is, God will not be king over me. That's what Lucifer is saying. 
And so they fall, and he takes a third of the angels with him who become demonic. What do you think their little Sunday school looked like? Okay, lesson one, spew green. No. Lesson one was be self-willed. Don't let God be your king. Put a cornucopia on your table that just accepts everything and is wide open and says there are many paths, there's many truths. Make truth irrelevant. That's how that works. I want to ask y'all to commit to making your tables this year and every day. Tables of Thanksgiving with a shofar in the center, with a gourd as a symbol that you want to be emptied of yourself and filled with the pure wine of His Holy Spirit, not a mixture. I hope I have enough of these and I have some Sharpies. I would ask y'all to just take a little bit of contemplative time today and look at this list that I have on your last page of notes. Fear, selfish ambition, pride, lack of discipline, deceit, hypocrisy, bitterness, anger, sadness, unforgiveness. What are you sometimes seeping into the vessel of your heart? And I would ask you, by way of confession between you and the Lord, and you can just do this with it once you write it down if you want so nobody can see. I want you to write what you tend to let seep into your vessel that would give you mixed wine. And then after a quiet time of a little bit of repentance, I want you to mark that out and replace it with what you can be filled with instead. If it's sadness this year, let it be joy. If it is irritability, let it be gentleness. If it's fear, let it be faith. And I want you to take this home and put it in the shofar of your heart to remind you to keep your vessel purified for Him.